Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. Earlier this year, the Biden administration set the goal of decarbonizing the United States' electricity system by the year 2035. To achieve this goal, much of the nation's existing fossil fuel power generation fleet will need to be replaced with renewable energy resources, foremost among them solar and wind generation. But swapping fossil fuel generation for clean energy is only part of the challenge on the road to a net zero carbon electricity system. The renewable energy projects that will generate power in the future will frequently be located in remote areas that are rich in wind and solar potential, yet lack existing electric transmission lines to transport clean energy over great distances to market. What remains to be seen is whether a vastly expanded electric transmission system capable of reliably moving vast amounts of clean power will in fact be built in time to reach clean energy targets. And the simple fact is that the way electric transmission is planned and paid for today is not up to the task of delivering our clean energy goals. On today's podcast, we'll take a look at the regulatory and market realities that keep our electric grid locked in the past. And we'll look at recent action by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the nation's electric grid regulator, to explore changes to the way transmission is planned and paid for to build a low carbon grid of the future. Here to talk about the regulatory and market challenges that need to be overcome on the way to a low-carbon electric grid is my guest, Mark Montalvo. Mark is president and CEO of Daymark Energy Advisors. He has 25 years of market and regulatory experience in the electricity industry, including in senior roles at ISO New England. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So the challenge that we're going to be talking about today is that of building an electric transmission system to support clean energy. And in broad strokes, what new demands does clean energy bring to the electric grid? And what would a transmission system that maximizes the potential of clean energy look like? That's a great question. So I think it's important to consider uh, that question in two parts. First is, how does it differ, uh, that grid differ from the grid we have today? Uh, and why are those differences important? And then, uh, and that's speaking to the physical infrastructure, that is the wires, where the wires are located, uh, how the system is, uh, is laid out and how that's different. And then the other part of the answer to that question, I think, is really uh, how is that system operated in a way that might be different from how it's been operated in the past? So uh, those are the two pieces. So I'll take them in, in part. So the first piece, I think, is, to, is important to remember how we got to where we are. So the electric transmission system, the grid broadly described, really is a, a network of uh, transmission facilities, high voltage lines, uh, transformers, substations that connects generators which supply electric power to loads, that is customers. And that's its function. 
It's a pretty straightforward function, but it requires a lot of integration and a lot of uh, coordination. And the reason why it requires a lot of coordination is that electricity uh, is uh, unique in a lot of ways that all the power that is created must be consumed essentially simultaneously. So we have a system that's designed to allow for the production transportation and consumption of power in that way. And, and it's coordinated in that way. And it's also designed to be reliable in that if there are elements of the system that fail, generators or transmission facilities that fail, go out of service, need to be repaired, uh, there is no uh, interruption of electricity. So that's how it was built uh, historically. And in broad strokes, that's actually the planning paradigm that will continue into the future, independent and irrespective of the kinds of sources. What's important and what really has changed is the nature of those sources. So if you think about where we got our electricity in the past, it's been primarily from fossil fuel-fired resources, burning coal, burning natural gas, many nuclear plants. These are large projects uh, generally located, you know, close to a couple of things, sources of cooling water, so on large bodies of water, and close to sources of their fuel, either mines or along, along gas pipelines. So that's how the system has been laid out. As we consider going forward, moving, as you described, to a situation where we want to take carbon out of the system, so we no longer want to burn coal or natural gas, uh, but rather use uh, wind or solar, now we have to site our wind plants where it's windy and our solar plants where it's sunny. And those locations aren't necessarily where the coal plants and the gas plants and the nuclear plants were located. So there's different types of geographic constraints. And the other thing that I think is important to keep in mind is that those locations are generally fairly remote from the load. So there has been no reason historically to build a lot of transmission into the locations where you might have a very strong wind resource, for example, or a very strong solar resource. These are you know, the, the plains of the upper Midwest or offshore for wind or the desert Southwest. These are not places where there are people. And so there's a lot of transmission then that needs to be built just to interconnect the, these resources. So I think on the planning side, on the design side, what do you need to build? We're, we're looking at it uh, from those two different perspectives. It's lo location of the sources are different and so you need to build transmission where transmission wasn't needed before, uh, but also the um, the facilities that you have in place to serve the trans to the generators you've used uh, historically aren't necessarily useful in the same way, and so you have to uh, reconfigure the system also. So to sum up what the situation is, the planning construct or lack thereof that's used to plan new transmission for the electric grid doesn't really set us up or put us in a in a, you know the situation where we can build transmission to these areas where a lot of this 
new generation doesn't even exist yet. We don't know when it's coming, how much of it's going to be coming. We don't know exactly where it's going to be, which is very different from the way the grid is planned today, which you have a defined need. It's a short-term problem that needs to be resolved. There may be a shortage of transmission to serve a certain area. We know what that shortage has to serve and the transmission is built. My understanding is that when we're looking at renewable energy, that is much less clear. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct, I think, as, a, as an overall uh, kind of statement of the problem. Um, so the the current planning regime that, uh, that we operate under the FERC, that is the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which is which I usually refer to and most folks refer to as the commission, considers three things, uh, reliability infrastructure needs, so-called economic infrastructure needs, or what's what's referred to as public policy infrastructure needs, and all of this comes out of uh, a ruling uh, from several years back uh, called Order One Thousand. This construct, and the idea is, if you have a need to build facilities in order to maintain the reliability of the system, that is to ensure that that you can deliver power uh, to customers under the preponderance of conditions consistent with standards. Okay you build those transmission facilities. And that's what you refer to as the, the near-term need, you know, cause for transmission, for sure. The other one is this idea of economic. That is, if, if you could build facilities that would allow the system to be more efficient, right, and uh, would reduce uh, inefficiencies in a couple of different ways, increase the utilization of existing facilities, reduce congestion on existing facilities, that uh, that there should be a mechanism for those to get built. Um, economic transmission as a general matter uh, is a bit more complicated um, and there hasn't been as much uh, economic transmission built. Uh, and largely it's it comes down to questions of economic for whom and how do you allocate the costs. Um, and that, and it's so it's not nearly as cut and dry as reliability, right? Reliability is easy. It, it either either the system is reliable. Here's a standard. It's an engineering assessment, or it's not. When you start dealing with economic assessments and cost benefits, uh, there's a, there's a lot more room for debate uh, and discussion, and that can cause issues. And that leads us to the third area, which I think is extremely. Uh, relevant to this conversation, which is the so-called public policy idea, where the commission uh, came up with a rule that said, you know, if a state uh, has a policy uh, that uh, requires the building of transmission or transmission needs to be built in order to support the realization of a policy, say, uh, the building of renewable resources, then the state should be able to uh, forward projects that support those policy needs. And there would be a, a certain way of paying for those regionally and those could go forward. Public policy transmission, again, uh, is complicated uh, by a couple of factors. And uh, these are these are factors that I think that complicate a lot of the things that we de deal with more broadly as regards infrastructure in our economy. Uh, one of them is that uh, again, the the impacts and effects of transmission generally uh, rarely just fall within one state. So there's multi-state impacts. So now, how do you share the costs and benefits when one state may have a policy and another state may not have a policy? 
And uh, it may even be the case where the resource that you really want to connect to load uh, is in another state, right? Uh, and so who's the beneficiary uh, of transmission built to connect those wind resources or those solar resources to the res to the to the loads in my state, for example, uh, where my policy is to have those resources here, it ends up with you end up with a lot of complication. And there have been very few instances where we've actually had public policy transmission uh, development, and the majority of that has happened within the context uh, under Order One Thousand, and the majority of that has happened within the context of single state. Uh, ISO such as New York ISO. There's been a little bit of activity in PJM, but that's been largely contested uh, and some things in, in California. Um, Texas, which is not uh, regulated by the commission, has seen success under a different model. And uh, there has been some some work done in, in MISO, which covers the Midwest, uh, but all of that actually was done before Order 1000 uh, and proceeded under a, a different kind of paradigm. It sounds like there's, on the planning front, their transmission is, is uh, planned reactively in many cases these days. Whereas when you're looking at public policy goals, a state wants to decarbonize by year X in the future, or as President Biden has proposed, a, a completely decarbonized electric grid by in another 15 years or so. We're talking about kind of a proactive look at the future. How do we create an electric grid, build the transmission that we need to support all of that clean energy that we're, we're going to be having to look at? So that's one of the issues. You also talked about the jurisdictional issues between the states. And I think there's a very interesting case that happened recently in the state of Maine, where uh, there's a high voltage line that's uh, proposed to be built that would bring electricity from hydro resources up in Quebec down to Massachusetts. And recently there was a vote in Maine on this line because the line would pass through Maine, but not necessarily provide that much benefit to Maine, depending on who you ask. The, the, the voters in that state said no. So you've got to herd the cats, which is all the states to kind of make these things happen. So it, it's interesting. So FERC, which we've talked about, which is the electricity market regulator, recognizes that we don't have the market or regulatory framework today really to deliver the grid of the future. And under uh, Richard Glick, who's the current FERC chairman, the commission is starting to take some action or look at what actions it needs to take to get us where we need to be in terms of new transmission. As you mentioned, in July, it released a document called an Advance Notice of Proposed Rulemaking or an, an ANOPER, which considers how to address the challenge of planning transmission to meet the demands of clean energy and climate change. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what the ANOPER is and how does FERC frame the challenge we face with the grid going forward? The ANOPER is a really interesting exercise. So the commission really has been wrestling with this issue for several years. And they had several technical conferences uh, prior to the release of the ANOPER, trying to gain some understanding into some of the major moving parts, right? So 
you know, and I think you alluded to some of those questions. You know, is it appropriate to be more proactive in our planning, or is reactive planning sufficient? Uh, is it appropriate to have uh, the majority of transmission projects built in response to identified needs of who are taking service now, or is it appropriate to think about what? customers who might take service years from now might need and actually build the transmission in anticipation, right? That's the general uh, thrust of those questions. And historically, as you say, the way that the the transmission uh, planning process has been uh, structured and the way the transmission tariffs has have worked is you transmission companies will uh, evaluate requests for incremental service that is the needs of new load customers or the needs of uh, interconnecting generators and assess the uh, ability of their systems to accommodate those those needs and then build additional transmission, uh, what we refer to as transmission upgrades in order to interconnect and integrate those loads and generators. So that's how it's been done. And there was a lot of conversation through those technical conferences around whether or not that paradigm continues to make sense. And there were a couple of things that were revealed in those technical conferences. One was that just the sheer scope and scale of upgrades is really accelerating. That is, historically, when you interconnected a generator, you had to make some modest modifications to the system in order to interconnect. Now generators, even small generators that are requesting interconnection are very frequently finding themselves in a situation where they have to pay for uh, fairly substantial upgrades to the network. So not just interconnection facilities, but broader network facilities. So the, the commission was, is asking the question uh, in the ANOPER, does that continue to make sense? Does it really make sense to have interconnecting customers pay for network upgrades when arguably network upgrades by their very nature uh, benefit more than one party? Um, and given the economies of scale of the system, it may be sensible to scale upgrades uh, to the network in a manner that uh, that purposefully serves more than one customer going forward uh, so that you can have just better cost and performance overall. So they said, so they're revisiting in the ANOPER this, this idea that you kind of pay for and upgrade the system as you go on an incremental basis. And they're, they're in the ANOPER testing that premise. They're also testing the, the, the idea uh, around the public policy uh, proposals uh, that they in, in, included in Order 1000 and really exploring the sufficiency of that paradigm, saying, okay, well, if many, many states are looking to uh, decarbonize and the states are using a shared infrastructure, right? Which is this this transmission grid. Does it make sense for uh, the states to move public policy projects individually, or perhaps it makes more sense for there to be a more coordinated uh, transmission planning process that looks across all of uh, multiple states um, in a region and thinks about what are the expectations of need. Uh, several years out 
5, 10, 15, 20 years out, uh, given that, you know, the states are moving at different paces, but uh, there seems to be a, a a general push amongst all of us, uh, the majority of the states anyway, it's, it's too strong to say all, but the majority of the states towards a highly decarbonized power system. And everyone's moving, if everyone's moving in that direction or the majority is moving in the direction, well, why don't we just roll up our sleeves and plan for that, right? Plan the system to accommodate that and make those changes on a proactive way. And so FERC is exploring that in the ANOPER, and they asked numerous questions around that. And then they asked several additional questions around, well, and if we do those kinds of things, how do we determine who pays for what? And the who pays for what really is important, uh, Andy, because FERC's fundamental authority is over rates. It's over what folks pay for transmission service. It's not fundamentally over the way this what gets built um, or where it gets cited. It's how it gets paid for. And so ultimately, the, the commission is very much concerned that they have a structure that is consistent with their obligations under the Federal Power Act, which is their enabling law and all of the precedent that uh, what gets paid for uh, is consistent with their cost recovery principles, what's referred to as cost causation or beneficiary pays principles. And what that means, uh, simply put, is uh, that those who uh, benefit from the uh, transmission service should pay for the transmission service. So if I take a transmission service and it requires upgrades to be made, um, I'm the beneficiary, I should be paying for those upgrades. That's the simple case. Uh, it gets much more complicated if transmission is being built uh, for customers who don't really exist yet 20 years in the future, right? So FERC is asking these hard questions of, well, if we're planning the system and building the system that way, who are the beneficiaries? Uh, how do we identify the beneficiaries? How do we allocate the costs out in a fair way so that we uh, are actually charging rates that, let's be plain, are legal, right? I mean, that's mm -hmm. the fundamental mm -hmm. question. And so a fair amount of the ANOPER is taken up asking questions around that it's so important what you're, you're getting at here. And, you know, just to add a little bit of extra perspective, transmission lines are generally planned and built to serve relatively local need. And again, we're talking about building out a robust grid dependent largely on renewables that are going to be located far, far away from the cities where much of that electricity that's going to be generated will be consumed. So we're talking about a completely new paradigm where electric lines may have to cross hundreds, potentially, I guess, even thousands of miles, maybe that's an extreme, but to bring electricity from faraway locations to, again, where the electricity needs to be used. And there is not a clear structure in place in this country. There's no overarching agency, government body, regulator that says, you have to build this line to serve this need. As you pointed out, the FERC is an economic regulator. It cannot mandate anything. But to get closer to what you were talking about, it can determine the criteria under which lines may be built. You know, what are the benefits defined as? Who are the beneficiaries? 
And I think also the FERC has been looking at, well, do we expand what qualifies as a benefit? It used to be reliability, economic benefits, but now we have climate considerations, other benefits that all go in. And, and I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about how broader understanding of the benefits that new transmission lines brings may create an opening for the FERC to not mandate anything, but create the rules under which everybody understands electric lines in the future may need to be built? Yeah, that's a great question. So benefits is tricky. You know, it, it is it is typically the case, uh, you know, whenever you're building any public work uh, and you're expending the people's money, right, that, that you'll do a cost-benefit analysis. And the uh, the benefits that are assessed are all the benefits that accrue to to the to society from the from the building of the of the public work, right? And that will include direct benefits. Uh, and in the case of transmission, you know, it's the ability to actually transmit power. Um, it's uh, impacts on on costs. Uh, that is, if there's a reduction in energy costs because you're dealing with lower cost sources, any reliability benefits that may accrue, these kinds of things. Um, and then there's also consideration of what's referred to, and I think this is what you were alluding to, uh, so-called economic externalities, right? And what that is, is uh, an economic externality, simply put, is a, a cost or a benefit uh, that is not captured through market mechanisms inside of the price, um, but it is something that's valued by the folks who are, who are consuming or, or, or producing the, 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 the product, right? And so here we have a situation where a, a set of benefits uh, may accrue from the, from the efficient interconnection of, of, say, wind resources to loads. And those might include the uh, ability to reduce carbon emissions, so carbon footprint uh, reductions. So that's, that's beneficial. Uh, it might also include, it might also be important to include things such as tax benefits and other kinds of benefits to the communities where those wind uh, projects get located, right? So you have land that was perhaps seen as of lesser value. Now it's of higher value because it's been improved in some sort of way. So that's good. So you enabled the building of wind by building transmission. So do the benefits associated uh, those kind of tax benefits, do those accrue to the transmission or do those accrue to the wind? It's a question, right? It needs to be sorted out. You may see that there may be environmental justice related issues, right? So there are areas where uh, communities where there have been, you know, industrial facilities placed historically, um, power plants burning coal or oil uh, are, are high on that list. And to the, the extent to which uh, the interconnection of, of, of wind and solar resources and the use of those resources allow for the shutdown of those kinds of facilities that could be seen as a, as a benefit, right? A health benefit, but also just a, a remediating historical injustices benefit. Um, and these things are all facilitated by transmission uh, because if you can't connect the resources, then you can't deliver the, 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 the source. <laughs> you can't deliver the services. But also in, more directly in the consideration of the transmission to be built, uh, where you site the transmission, 
right? It, it also becomes important. So uh, if you cite the transmission in locations uh, that are already you know, used for transmission, existing right-of-ways, if you're able to co-locate transmission along uh, rail lines, if you are able to uh, put certain of the transmission underground, all of these things may be seen as beneficial, uh, but they also might not be costless. So for example, undergrounding transmission, a lot of people uh, would prefer transmission go underground uh, because now you don't have to look at it. And it also uh, has some reliability benefits because it's now less likely to get damaged by storms, but undergrounding is generally much more expensive. Uh, so how do you weigh the benefits of undergrounding against the cost of undergrounding and who pays for the difference? So these issues a lot of them are very local issues. Uh, a lot of the, and they're issues that are very important to the communities that are most directly impacted by the development of the infrastructure, be it the facilitated wind and solar projects or the transmission itself. Uh, they're considerations that are being made clearly by policymakers at the state level. Now, if you're the commission, there's nothing good or bad, right or wrong about those differences, but it's very difficult, I think, for the commission to come up with a a, a common set of, of uh, benefits that all of these states would necessarily agree to. And so that's part of their challenge and that's part of what they're exploring. Let, let me jump in on this one. So it's, it's, it's interesting. So basically what we're talking about is very long lines, as you've brought up, long one long line that crosses a lot of local jurisdictions and each local jurisdiction has its own concerns, its own demands, its own priorities. And this gets to kind of a crucial point that we're looking at here. There is so much uncertainty that is involved in planning and building this grid for the future. Again, to kind of jump back to where we were 10 or 15 minutes ago, much of the transmission planning today is reactive. It's when a new generator wants to interconnect to the system, the system may need to be upgraded where that interconnection takes place to handle the new load of electricity that comes through it. It's very, very clear. Okay, but again, we're looking at a future. We don't know when the transmission is going to come, how much, or excuse me, the generation is going to come, the clean generation, how much of it's going to be there. And that's the uncertainty that investors never like. And that's the type of uncertainty that very much gets in the way of investment coming through, which I want to get to the next point, which is you are an economist, right? And and you have said in the past that markets may be fundamentally the answer to this. Markets may be massaged by what the regulator does, but markets are good at handling uncertainty. I wonder if you could tell us about how markets might provide a solution to getting to the grid that we need. One of the things that I thought was uh, conspic conspicuously missing from the conversation that was held in the 15th at the technical conference and really wasn't discussed at all in the in the text of the ANOPER was the role of, of markets. Um, and so markets were seen as you know, being impacted clearly by whatever gets built, but not necessarily an actor that can uh, help to get the right things built and manage some of the risks that we're talking about in in a more effective way. And you know, I I think that I think that that's a potentially a lost opportunity. So uh, we have, for many many years in, in the United States, looked to markets 
to coordinate the development of generation to ensure the efficient production uh, of of the resource from the resources that we have, um, and 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 bring to bear the capital needed to to get all of that built. And all of those resources, generating resources, are long-lived resources. And so I build a power plant today. I have a, I'm making an investment that's going to pay off over the next 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, and markets are, are very good at thinking about those risks and the nature of those risks and allocating those risks appropriately. That's that's there's infrastructure in the markets designed to do that. And it, they can do that. And I think there's an opportunity in the context of transmission to really think about uh, how, how markets can be brought to bear. And markets might be brought to bear in a couple of different ways. Uh, first, there is uh, competition, just bringing competition uh, on the project front. So, you know, if you have a public policy problem, uh, and the public policy problem is, hey, we, we really do want to have twice as much wind resource available to the customers in, in our state or in our region uh, in the next 10 years. Uh, and then you, you could go out to the marketplace and you could, you could uh, solicit projects, sets of projects, portfolios of transmission projects, if you will, from the market uh, and that uh, would be facilitating uh, of the delivery of such resource. And then you could select the resource uh, through through competitive solicitation, and so that's that's using some market forces to to encourage the development of efficient portfolios of transmission, uh, and then the way you structure agreements and contracts and these kinds of things can determine uh, for you how the risks get allocated, right? So risks then get allocated by contract and we can, we can see what the market is willing to bring to bear. And this is in contrast to having uh, the transmission uh, planned and developed uh, under cost of service regulation uh, traditionally used by the utilities where if they build it, then they're uh, and it's deemed prudent to have been built by the regulator. Then they can recover the cost through time. So I think that there's an opportunity there, and I think it's a it's it, you know these kinds of opportunities have been used to a certain extent in some regions. So Texas uh, uh, used it in their CRES process. Um, it was used uh, in, in by Massachusetts uh, for the for the solicitation of transmission projects to bring power from Canada. Um, this idea of just bringing some competitive force uh, and some competition around the projects that could uh, provide what you're looking for. New York uses a, a somewhat similar pro process in the context of its public policy. Um, you know, it's it, it, but I think all of that can be strengthened, and you can use more. Uh, you can bring more competitive pressure to bear, if you will, and more and more market creativity around what the projects are, and how the risks get allocated. But the other area which has has been largely ignored is the idea of merchant transmission, and um, that is, you know, rather than having a planner uh, decide, you know, where the needs are or where the needs might. Uh, uh, evolve, um, allow uh, allow the market itself just on a merchant basis to uh, to decide, build projects, and the the success of the projects would be at risk. 
because if they weren't needed and they aren't used, uh, then the costs aren't recovered. They just, you know, just like anything else, uh, it's if you build something at risk in the market and you know you have no customers, well, you you go bankrupt, and that's okay. Um, and so I think that there are an opportunity, perhaps not for all of the infrastructure we're talking about, but for for particularly some of these really long. Uh, projects, uh, long line projects, much of which may economically be, for example, HVDC projects or other kind of really large uh, AC projects, uh, they lend themselves, I think, more towards a merchant model. And um, you could find that there may be investors that are interested. Uh, the the infrastructure that we have for planning, the consideration of merchant projects in the context of the broader planning uh, and and cost recovery of projects uh, would have to be, uh, I think, carefully reconsidered because I think right now merchant transmission is not necessarily uh, uh, treated in a way that makes a lot of sense. Um, most merchant transmission, because it's such a subset of the total transmission picture, is treated much like generation and evaluated like generation by the interconnecting transmission companies or the RTOs, uh, and that may not be appropriate. Uh, also, uh, the you know the the transmission projects themselves that are planned uh, and that go forward on a planned basis. Uh, do receive some preferential treatment under under the uh, the regulations of the commission as regards cost recovery, uh, rates of return, um, you know, special treatment um, for abandonment and other things that uh, would not uh, accrue or or to merchant projects, and we would want to make sure that. That the the regulations and the tariffs and everything are aligned in such a way that if it makes most sense for investors on a merchant basis to go forward with a project that way, uh, and that the most societally beneficial projects are realized through a merchant model, that those projects uh, can go forward and can efficiently go forward. So those are some of the those are some of the issues I think that that bringing market to bear uh, address that I think would be important. So let me ask you a final question here, and this may be a, you know, a kind of a key question to, to, to bring all these various nuts and bolts together. How do we get a guiding hand? And maybe it's from the FERC or from, I don't know who, from Congress, I don't know where it would come from, to create the conditions where one, we can have more certainty over the kinds of resources that this new transmission is going to have to support, more certainty that those resources, wind, solar, whatever, are going to be built, when they're going to be built, how much of them will be built. Number one. Number two, how do we create the construct under which the, as you also said earlier, the additional benefits, the climate, other economic benefits that these transmission projects would bring, how do we, how do we make sure that those are valued so that there is adequate market incentive to allow the markets to do their work? <sighs> You know, I don't know that there's going to be an Adam Smith of this problem, right? We are dealing with uh, layers of complexity, and uh, and layers of complexity that I, I think uh, folks need to be be cognizant of the complexity, but don't be paralyzed by it, right? And I and I think that folks are trying to move forward, but they're but they're very much concerned about the things that they don't know. 
I do believe it's very important that we all remain humble in the face of uncertainty and not boldly go like fools into the future uh, without a plan. Uh, I do think that uh, the nature of the the nature of the uh, transformation, right, the scope and scale of the transformation that we I, I think we collectively all agree is big, uh, requires a bit of boldness and a bit of bold risk taking and perhaps proceeding with not nearly as much information as we would hope we had. Right. Uh, and so that's I, I just want to lay that kind of foundationally. That's how I, that's how I think about the problem kind of foundationally from a, a matter of of just perspective that, you know, the we're in an industry that is traditionally very conservative and, you know, for for good reason, conservative. Right. Uh the the reliable delivery of electricity is fundamental it's fundamental to the health of our of our citizens it's health it's fundamental to the strength of our economy so we don't want to break that we don't want to mess that up um at the same time we are we want to make really uh transformational uh fundamentally transformational moves uh along the lines of where does the power come from and I don't think you can uh, make fundamental transformation and at the same time be as conservative about the changes as one has been historically around how you've done the planning. I think you just you guess you have to kind of break the shackles and say, okay, we're just going to have to do some things that might seem a little bit outside the box. And so I think what the commission needs to do um, really in this case is lay out some uh, very basic guidelines around the types of things that should be planned for, uh, that should be examined, um, some basic metrics uh, that look at the the that allow projects to be compared and considered in a in a simple way, uh, and then leave it to the the states and the regions really to to kind of get in the scrum and experiment. But I also think what they should do is they should use their position as the national regulator to to encourage um, additional conversation and sharing of information. You know, we have two two types of structures in, in the United States, right, where we have areas of the country which are we have regional transmission organizations or independent system operators where there's you know the, the the utilities within those regions are are coordinated. Their operations are coordinated, and the planning is somewhat coordinated. And then we have other areas of the country where the, there are no RTOs or ISOs, and uh, so there's less there's less coordination uh, amongst and between uh, the utilities. It doesn't mean they don't talk, but it's it's not as formalized. And so I think what what would be beneficial is that uh, the commission really do come back and, and formalize some of that conversation and say, look, these are the kinds of information that you need to be sharing. Uh, these are the type of analysis that you need to be doing. It's really important that you think in a, in a thorough way around expectations of needs out 10 to 20 years on an informational basis, if nothing else. 
And uh, that will allow uh, the states to collectively, if they so choose, or uh, decide to build projects. You know, I think one of the models that has been looked at and has been discussed at some length is up what they did in MISO, uh, that's Midwest ISO, uh, around the multi-value projects where you had several states uh, and MISO collectively looking at the needs uh, and how to most efficiently deliver the renewables uh, that the states, you know, in the upper parts of MISO had under their their individual state renewable uh, uh, portfolio standards, uh, how, how to build transmission to support all of that in the most efficient way. And there was a bunch of projects that got built. And um, that's that was deemed uh, relatively successful. Uh, but again, that was a combination of uh, the states moving, uh, the states uh, seeing kind of the benefit, MISO acting as facilitator, and FERC not getting in the way. I think that the lessons there should be that, you know, the, the FERC should really be encouraging the states uh, to, to coordinate with each other, uh, maximizing the the types of information that the RTOs and the ISOs can provide given where they sit. Um, and then, and then providing, uh, providing just some clear guidance. Um, so if there are certain things that just are unacceptable, right. Uh, as regards cost recovery, just state that have a clear policy and say, look, as regards cost recovery, we cannot allow tariffs to include X, Y, Z, and so if it's not X, Y, Z, it's on the table and allows for that rich experimentation. We can go forward. I, I don't know that there's any one way to do this. New England it doesn't look like New York, doesn't look like Eastern PGM, doesn't look like Western PGM, doesn't look like, right? There are a lot of issues in these various parts of the country uh, from a power system perspective, from a grid structure uh, perspective, never mind uh, from, a, from a policy or a political perspective. And so... Uh, I think if the FERC can provide clarity as to what they don't deem acceptable, quite frankly, in the reverse, and that would allow everyone to go forward and really experiment and try and solve uh, regionally uh, for their problems and their issues going forward. And then the FERC just kind of facilitates and otherwise stays out of the way. So if the states agree, you know, and it doesn't fall into the, well, we don't like this bucket then FERC should be okay with it. And I think that would be a way forward uh, that could be uh, productive and helpful. And it would reduce, it would remove a whole lot of uncertainty around, uh, well, will FERC accept this, right? Uh, will will we end up in litigation, right? That would, it would provide some clarity around that. Mark, thank you very much for talking. Oh, you're welcome. Today's guest has been Mark Montalvo, President and CEO of Daymark Energy Advisors. Subscribe to Energy Policy Now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you have new episodes delivered to you. And to keep up to date on all the latest research and online events from the Climate Center for Energy Policy, subscribe to our newsletter on our website. Thanks for listening to Energy Policy Now, and have a great day.